Hey listeners, it's Philip here um, with my brother Peter and my cousin Mark, and we have a lot to discuss. Um, we're recapping the U.S. Open, um, and uh, the new star who emerged, Daniil Medvedev, uh, he, uh, he was more shocked than anyone. Um, during his quarterfinal match against Stan, he was feeling his quad injury, and was really, really considering retiring, but he just kept winning sets, so he couldn't retire. Uh, and then the same thing in the third set against Nadal. He, was, he wasn't he was injured, but he was thinking, oh, wow, I'm down two sets in a break. In 20 minutes, I'll have to give my runner-up speech. And he, like, fights to a fifth set. Um, so, Mark and Peter, what I'm, what I'm asking you is, have you ever just thought you were toast, but things just inexplicably went your way and you were as shocked as anyone else? Yeah, so for me, that I guess inherent to this question is, or, or things inexplicably feeling like they go your way is either A, you're being, you feel like you're being overly ambitious and you just don't have the resume for the thing you're doing, or B, um, you hit some adversity and it still works out. And so I think with uh, a recent thing for me was I was apartment searching in, in Boston and I I I uh, I got like a pretty decent place and was happy about it and um, but then basically five days before I would need to move I was told that the place was no longer on the market. And so I was scrambling for, for new places and Literally, like, 12 hours after the place grew, I got a place that was $500 a month cheaper and way better. <laughs> uh, and I think another thing, another common thread among this is it's generally the times I've played the numbers game really, really hard. Um, like, one was with the apartments I viewed, like, 20. Another, others have been with, like, job apps and, uh, like, grad school apps and stuff. And it's basically just applying to things like on paper I didn't have sort of a prototypical resume for, but just applying to enough things where I get my break anyway because um, because of the law of large numbers. Mark, what about you? Yeah, well, I'm going to start with a non-sports analogy, and then I'm going to get into sports. Actually, for me, the first thing that jumped to mind has been owning Facebook stock. I guess I bought it right after the initial IPO, and uh, I kept saying, "Okay, I'm, I'm not going to sell yet. I'm not going to sell yet. I'm not going to sell yet." You know, I want I want to at least try to make my money back. I think I bought it at forty, you know, maybe ten thousand dollars worth of stock. It would go down to twenty six. I was like, "All right, I'll just stick it out, stick it out another day, another day, another day." And then I kind of just went off the grid. I think I actually forgot that I have my TD Ameritrade account. And then when I looked again, it was up at 90. And I said, all right, well, I'm going to hold on to it until it makes it to 100. And, uh, and the next thing you know, it was at 170 or 180. And I had, I had sold some of the stock when it got down to 30. And I was actually the same thing when I was holding on to silver before. It just bottomed out uh, right after they killed Osama bin Laden. But with investments, when I've sort of forgotten to sell sometimes, it's actually worked out. And then there have been matches where, and I maybe maybe the same with you guys, but I actually knew I couldn't. I almost played the tournament just hoping I could make it to the semis so I could default. 
you know, having won a match because <laughs> I had uh, some commitment on Sunday. And it's happened twice where I was really trying to lose on purpose. And then things would happen. The other opponent would start making mistakes. And the next thing you know, I I won the match and, and I was able to, to finagle my schedule for the next day. So it's sort of, I guess, in, in a way, you know, when we look at what happened with Medvedev, it was a bit of a no-lose situation. Maybe that helped him relax. Yeah, those are good examples. Uh, I have one, I guess, uh, less extreme example, which is uh, I was taking the GRE, and uh, I had guessed on, like, several questions and thought I had done worse on the exam than I did in my practice tests. And I was really considering... So they give you an option to either see your score or cancel your score but you can't like cancel your score before seeing it so it's like do you want this to count or not and i was just like this is not the best i could could have done but i just don't the thought of like continuing to study for the test was so miserable to me that i was just like okay i'll i'll fucking go with what i got and i i click like see scores and it was like a 99th percentile score I'm just like, holy crap, I guessed really well. Um, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that was a that was a pretty good uh, moment, uh, a Medvedevian moment. Um, I like it. I, 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 think that's a, I think that's a great example. I think it's a, it can become an, a, an anthem for, for those who doubt. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, before the podcast, Peter and I, we were, I guess, our first question for recapping the open is uh what were the top five matches would you say and well, peter, I guess Pe- I, peter peter know, had a list of like uh matches that he he thought would go in this category yeah so there was the first round match that mark actually called successfully rublev fits the pass that was a pretty amazing match I think the best three-setter of the tournament also included Rublev when he beat Kyrgios. That night where the Kyrgios-Rublev match and the Maltese-Pokolov match were playing simultaneously, mm. some extremely entertaining tennis. Um, it had me and Mark texting. Um, yes. a lot. A lot. And uh, then there was um, the... Uh, the Malfi um, Berrettini match, which was a, a fifth set tiebreak. Um, the the Dimitrov Federer match, it did go five, but I don't I don't know if it stacks up because even though the quality of the first few sets was good, Federer did get injured, and that's just kind of sad to see. And the same is true with the uh, Stan Djokovic match. The quality was extremely high early, but Still, um, it's just sad to see a a uh, an injured uh, champion, um, and then obviously the final, which had everything. And um, the mark of those. Did, of did those you did you mention Monfils Berrettini? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, the one that went to the fifth set tiebreak. Yeah. Um. So of. First, are there others that you would include, and how would you rank those? How would you rank the top five? Well, I I think part of what makes this an interesting question is when matches end up being more interesting than on paper they should have. Uh, Or, you know, you would 
kind of if you were at the stadium or you could watch several matches on TV because you have the U.S. Open package, those matches would be afterthoughts, and then they really turned out to be great matches. I mean, the Kyrgios-Rubelev, I think I'm, I'm glad that my prediction was right in the first round because I think that made that match more interesting, as interesting as it would have been to see, um, you know, the Greek freak play against his friend Kyrgios. I think just Rubelev and, and Kyrgios have, are such high-octane players that it made it even better. I, the only thing I would add to that with the first set of Rafa and Berrettini, maybe it wasn't Rafa's best set of tennis, but he summoned his best game when he had to most. And he won a set that I don't even think he thought he would win at 4-0 in the tiebreaker. And so that, I think, became, you know, a, a, again, one of these sort of... Maybe he, he overachieved a little bit in terms of the tournament. Uh, the other matches, I'm sure there were some great ones. Songa probably, and uh, whoever he lost to in the first or second round, I think that went, that match went against uh, Tennis Sangren. was probably a great match. Uh, I think, even as you say, as we were texting yesterday during the match, how high quality it was, even though I don't know if Rafa ever felt he was in trouble of losing either of the first two sets, but it was so high quality that uh, that was great. And I think the first two sets of Rafa and, and uh, Schwartzman were, were excellent tennis as well. But I, I, think, I think you hit the nail on the head, and I think if those matches were to be replayed on TV, I'd, I'd try to watch a good chunk of them. Yeah, I think you're you're mis omitting one match, um, which was uh, when the tournament favorite uh, was shocked in the first round uh, because Pablo Cuevas just summoned <laughs> the power of Zeus uh, to take out uh, Jack Sock in the first round. Um, he yeah. he was so gassed after that match that he ended up losing next round to an unknown guy. I just think you have to sort of set that match aside because it just every you know that every other match will be inferior by comparison. So it's important <laughs> to kind of you know it, it's sort of like when if the big four don't don't play in a tournament, the big three, then everybody else has a chance. And it's the same way, you know. It gave it gave other matches a chance to to compete for in the pantheon of pantheons. Yeah. yeah. The way I rank the matches would be the final was first. Part of it's because it has the cachet of being the final. Um, and it just had so much. Um, and then the number two, I would have Berrettini, Malfi. Um, it was a fifth set tiebreak. Uh, Berrettini came very, very close to choking at... Um, <laughs> at like four different occasions, but he was able to close at the end. Um, Malfi again with Shapovalov. That was a, uh, he was up double break in the fourth set, lost it, and managed to win the fifth set, which that shows some grit. And then, um, I don't know, how, how would you guys round out the top five? I would say Rublev sits a pass. It was a really strong match. And, uh, yeah, I didn't see the uh, Kyrgios-Rublev match, but from what I hear, that was incredible as well. Yeah, that was incredible. Um, one of the things I think is worth noting is, I guess two of the matches we didn't include were, like, the Federer loss and the Djokovic loss. But what, what those losses really show, I don't know, actually, Djokovic didn't win a set, but... When the big three lose, it's always tight. It's like they never get wiped off the court. 
I mean, Djokovic was, was, would have won the second set, I think, if the shoulder was cooperating. I think he was playing on endorphins. He did have a two-break lead. Stan was hitting the ball great. But it was, it was you know, Djokovic wins the second set. If it goes four, he could probably win that match and then has to default in the next one. But if it went five, he would have had to default anyway. But I think it was, again, that was closer than the score indicated. You know, and it wasn't like he was losing 4-0 in the third set when he retired. I think they were just on serve. And he realized that, you know, I can't go five. My, my arm won't allow it. And but that, Which match was particularly noteworthy because he got booed off the court after he defaulted. And it just goes to show, like, there is nothing he can do right. Like, it's almost an inexplicable, like, hatred of Djokovic for a lot of the fans out there. Because he did the exact same thing Nadal did last year. And Nadal yeah. did not get booed off the court. Um he, he, um, I guess he was a villain early in his career for doing like weird stuff. Um, but he has like since reformed and reformed in a big way. And all it took was like a match and a half for Medvedev to go from villain to like fan favorite because he, he was like winning and sufficiently contrite. And Djokovic has been winning his entire career for the last 10 years and he's been just sufficiently classy and contrite about his like younger self and there's just nothing he can do yeah i think people are just like angry at him for disrupting the federer nadal like uh (laughs) like love fest at the top uh like making it a threesome instead of like having it be this magnificent uh, monogamous uh, relationship. Uh, I think I think you're actually right. I think there are enough better Nadal fans out there who've been who Djokovic has has uh, been the cause of enough heartbreak for that just everybody is is sort of has scars on their heart from Djokovic. I know for a fact that I hope Djokovic loses every match. Because I'm a Nadal fan and Djokovic owns Nadal, but I still do like Djokovic. But it took a lot of time to get around to the fact that I I do like Djokovic. Yeah, and, I think it and takes And one thing Djokovic does is so when Federer is in the finals, I can root for Djokovic because Federer is the bigger rival than Djokovic at the moment. Um, yeah, yeah. What were you gonna say, Mark? The only, thing I would, only other thing I would add to that conversation is I would say the U.S. Open, more than any of the other four Grand Slams, may draw people to the night matches who are just in it, you know, for for their social media appeal. They go to the matches because it's cool. So I do wonder if it was a large percentage of genuine tennis fans, you know, then they really, they sort of missed the larger point. But if it was just people are out there because it was cool booing, then they, you know, maybe the same people just boo at everything they go to. And so they don't really know tennis. I mean, maybe anybody would see, and again, and as a Djokovic fan, I was being cynical too. And you guys reminded me, you know, the guy, the guy's not a quitter. He'd only quit if his arm, you know, if his shoulder wasn't functioning. And, you know, if they didn't, they, they didn't know what happened to him in the previous matches, they don't really have a context for understanding. So, who knows? I'm gonna I'm gonna give Djokovic in this case the benefit of the doubt with real tennis fans, but like the fly by nights, maybe not. Yeah. 
possible. Yeah. And Mark, uh, I guess the second thing we wanted to talk about was uh, uh, the women's final. And I guess uh, a few storylines that were are interesting from that side of the draw. And you were in the stadium for that match. So what was your uh, experience there? Sure. Yeah, a co- couple things. You know, that's the only time I've ever paid just to see a women's tennis match. <laughs> it may be the last. I'm glad I went. And my first observation was that as much of a boon as two out of three sets would team for the women, at the same time, it also makes it more difficult um, for somebody who's not having a good start. And in Serena's case, she sometimes needs like an hour to get her rhythm. She looked a little flat in the warm-up. And Drescu, for whatever reason, wasn't actually giving her anything to hit in the warm-up, just painting everything down the lines. And she seemed rusty. And, you know, before she knew it, she was down, let's say, 2-0 or 3-0 in the second set. So there's a little bit of... I actually have a little bit of sympathy for the women. They really don't have a lot of time to work their way into a big match against a good opponent if they're a little bit slow-footed. Uh, yeah, I think people adapt, though, because I remember when squash changed its scoring from you went on your serve to your, you win every rally, meaning, like, matches got a lot shorter. You sort of had to pack a lot more intensity into, like, a smaller amount of time. And it was less of a transition than I thought it would be. Um, but I do think, yeah, it's like an hour in, you can be down – Basically, you can be down a break in the final set and uh, not even ever have really warmed up. My take on the final is that it was really just deja vu from last year. We had this 19-year-old, or without sort of the the referee uh, interventions, but uh, we had this 19-year-old phenom who was, who, uh, who, was really breaking through. Um, Andrescu is really, really good. She's 8-0 this year against top 10 competition. Her record for the year is 40-4, and and she hasn't lost since March. She is extremely athletic. She hits the ball really hard and with a lot of spin. And um, she, she looks a lot like Osaka does on court when she's playing well, when they're playing but they look like each other when they're playing well in terms of their games. And so I think this really could be the dawn of like a Andrescu Osaka era. If I guess the WTA is lucky and both of them continue yeah. to rise with Coco Goff in the, in the wing. Yeah. And I would say also, as we saw with Medvedev in the third and fourth set, and even in the fifth set, when he was serving, volleying down match point, whether it was a first serve or a second serve, you really do have to, you have to air it out. You know, you're not going to beat a star playing it safe. I mean, you might sneak a game in playing, you know, trying to lull him into a little bit of, of, uh, you know, moon ball tennis, but you really have to go for, you have to almost have to try to beat him at their own game. Yeah. Uh, Andrescu definitely did. She went for it on the returns. And 
you know, Serena, and then it just goes to show, I think Serena's lost four or five Grand Slam finals in a row because she hasn't served particularly well in any of them. And she may, it may, she looked flat out there. My guess is she needs to get out there and play a set with her sister like two hours before the match and be in better rhythm. She didn't look like she was in rhythm at all. If it wasn't for the crowd, she would have, she would have lost 6-1 in the second. The crowd was really the only thing that actually brought her back. Yeah. yeah. So... My, my, one last point about the women's. Um, I think one of the things that's really nice about this is just um, the women's side for like outside of Serena, the past decade since like Henna and Kleister's retired has been lacking star power. And Serena's been on and off. Uh, she's still like the best one when she's out there, but she's old and not what she used to be. And it's, it might be a really good thing for women's tennis to finally get some stars again. Yeah. And, uh, okay. Uh, speaking of stars, I think, um, one of, I think we're, uh, you guys might be intentionally overlooking the biggest storyline from that match out of, you know, being embarrassed to talk about it. Um, but, uh, I think one of the big things to come out of that match was, um, was Patrick Moritoglu, did he have his hand on uh, Meghan Markle's leg? We hope so. For his sake, we hope so. Yeah. Um, I mean, here are some uh, data points that point to yes. Um, so when he was asked uh, during the like pre-tournament interview if he had any regrets about uh, coaching Serena in match last year, he said no, he would do it again, which means he is not afraid of cheating. Um and uh, data point number two is that he's French, and you know. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think I think the answer is probably yes. It's all about you know. It's it's, it's all about believing what we want to believe. <laughs> Speaking of which, at what point, Phil? You called it. You called it from the start. Uh, Peter and I were were sort of you know, playing statistical probability. And I know that there's maybe once or twice or five times that you've really picked Rafa to win a tournament purely with your heart or another organ. But in this case, you sort of felt that he was going to win from the start. And what, uh, what did you see prior to the tournament? Or was it more that, hey, he's been knocking on the door with these hardcore tournaments the last couple of years. And so, you know, he just with a couple of minor adjustments, he'll be able to, to grab the trophy. So it was more of a probabilistic thing, which is, okay, Djokovic owns Rafa, and if Djokovic makes the final, uh, Djokovic is going to win the tournament. But uh, Djokovic had a hard draw, and he wasn't playing his best tennis going into the tournament. And, like, Federer was on his side, so that they would have to, like, really just duke it out. And, um, and so I think Nadal was... Uh, as sure a lock as there has been in recent uh, history to make the finals, just because his draw was like pretty good, and even more so after the first day of upsets when like Sitsipas team and Kachanov all lost, um, and so it's just like okay, I'm pretty sure Nadal is going to be in the final, and uh, and he's a coin flip to win against Djokovic or Federer um, if he's up against one of them and. 
a decent lock to win if he's up against anyone else. So it's just like probabilities just it was more likely that he would win than anyone else. It seemed. Was there, was there a point where you saw, you know, the possibility of Medvedev playing against Nadal where you felt like a little bit like Sampras at the end of his career when he'd make the finals and then he'd get, you know, somebody who was young, hungry and on, on the brink of um, that sort of career starting. Was there, was there a point where you felt that Medvedev, you know, could do some damage or was it really only in the third and fourth sets where you thought, oh, wow, you know, this is not going to be, so, this is not going to be an easy win. So odds checker had Medvedev as a four to one um, underdog. And uh, I sort of had him as a three to one underdog. I thought there was a 25% chance he would win. Um, and then after Rafa uh, won the first two sets, I'm like, okay, uh, Rafa has this in control. Um, and going into the match, I wasn't particularly uh, scared because I knew Medvedev had this quad injury. Um, and it didn't seem to be hampering his play all that much, but I think you need to be 100% against Nadal. That combined with Medvedev just getting crushed by Nadal in Montreal, uh, it was just like, okay, Nadal is like a pretty heavy favorite here. But then when Medvedev won the third and fourth, uh, it, he had this look on his face that I just thought he thinks he's going to win this match. Like, I think he thinks he's figured out Nadal. Um, and that was pretty scary because uh, I've seen that look on Djokovic's face too. Um but then, uh, yeah, I think Nadal just gritted it out. Um, and I was actually, yeah, after Nadal got the break in the fifth, I was like, I sort of was a little bit relieved. And then after the second break, I was a little bit more relieved. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I started to really worry when it went to the fifth set. Yeah, I was, I was similar. One of the things I was thinking about throughout the match was whether um, – with whether that match they played in in Canada helped Nadal or hurt Nadal. Because on the one hand, Nadal is really, really good against people who've never played him before. And so maybe Medvedev had sort of, uh, just having had seen Nadal before, he had a better chance. But he also may have had kind of like a confidence issue um, just because Nadal beat him so bad. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess now is a good time to transition into, like, Medvedev's future. Like, what do we see for him? Like, is is this more less of an if he wins his, a Grand Slam rather than a win? He wins his Grand Slam? Well, I think he, for, let me let me start by saying you remember the text exchanges because I went in really bullish on him. Then his behavior against Lopez of all people, like if you're going to misbehave on court and sort of turn into Kyrgios, the last person you should be doing it against is Lopez, who's played whatever sixty-five or seventy straight Grand Slams, you know, and plays on clay when he has no clay game. So I think he had to transition out of villain mode as soon as he started playing. Let's say against Stan. You know, people who have who have a lot of street cred in the sport and are relative fan favorites. He had he had to transition out of villain mode. So I think that was the most important victory, is sort of getting the tennis masses back on his side. You know, again, 
starting to trend upward on social media. Uh, I think I was surprised a little bit. I would say he did look a little bit, you know, I felt like he was a little lucky to hold surf. You know, he fended off some break points. Um, you know, maybe Rafa pulled back on a shot he could have hit a winner with. I felt that he did play a little scared, uh, started to find his form again in the second set. But if he had lost in three, I think if Rafa had held the break he had in the third and beat him in three, I would have, I would have said that would have uh, delayed his Grand Slam march. But the way he played in the last two sets flipped the switch and now it's accelerated him. And I, I would say he's as much of a favorite to win Australia. As, as anybody next year yeah yeah so um what about what would you say who what would be your young guy like top five uh as in guys who might win australia um like in january like who are I'll, ready I'll to win i'll let you guys answer that first and then yeah I, then so i have answer. one guy who also made a semi-final i don't think i think medvedev is number one on the list but berrettini is uh here to stay um and uh I don't think he's going to win Australia, but he had an awesome U.S. Open, and he's going to continue having awesome tournaments. Um, uh, Sverev, semifinal. What do you say? Tsitsipas also made a Grand Slam semifinal this year. Yes, yeah, Tsitsipas made one, made it in Australia. Uh, Sverev still has not made a Grand Slam semifinal, um, uh, and we just have no idea where his game is. Um, and then I think after his loss to Schwartzman, he was asked about Medvedev, and he basically just like trashed Medvedev, basically saying like, "Look at, uh, he's just a bad ambassador for the sport because like he acts like um, he doesn't act in the classy way that we've seen like better act." And Zverev, that match against um, that match. Earlier that day, had had a conduct point against him for basically <laughs> Yeah, he was so hypocritical. He's just like like those in glass houses shouldn't act them. Yeah, and also okay, Rublev. I think he's like on the rise. Um, he's gonna be top ten next year, I think. Um, so the red curtain of Rublev, uh, Medvedev, and Kachanov—they're just gonna be there. They're gonna be mainstays in the top 10 for the next 10 years um and then the uh continuation of the red curtain because canada's flag has is red and white um it's just gonna be all red um in the top 10 uh within the next like three years um but yeah so so my top five uh young guys like who might win the next Grand Slam are uh, are Medvedev is number one, uh, Sitsipas is number two, Rublev is number three, um, and then Felix. I just think he's getting so much better all the time. He's only uh, he just turned nineteen, so he'd be my number four at the moment, and then uh, I guess an open spot for number five, maybe Berrettini. Yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll jump on that bad wing, and I, I spent a decent amount of time thinking about this. I mean, Medvedev, the gap between him and the rest of the field increased fivefold in two hours yesterday. Sets three, four, and five to be able to dig back from two sets down 
actually have a break point to even the match at 5-5. If he capitalizes on that break point, I think he wins. So he, uh, he battled against the crowd. He battled against a, a tough match in Canada. He battled against... Talk about the crowd a little more because you were part of it. Yeah, so I think the crowd was looking for reasons not to be on Medvedev's side. Um, it was just, you know, Rafa, who uh, rightly, even more so than Federer. I mean, Federer sort of gets, you know, the lunge, whatever it is. But Rafa is the one who plays with the passion. Rafa is the one that makes it fun. You know, is it fun to watch Federer? No, it's impressive to watch Federer. But it was, it's fun to watch Rafa. So it, the crowd was pro-Rafa, um, neutral towards Medvedev. He started getting them on his side with just his, you know, incredible backhands, incredible movement. Uh, and then I think he really got the crowd wanting to extend the match. So they were, you could just tell, he said all the right things afterwards. I think the crowd gave him every chance he could to extend the match. And and he's clearly not the antagonist anymore. He's, you know, he's He was the co-protagonist of yesterday. So I think just just being there, you saw how well Rafa was playing and how hard Medvedev had to work to to win every point, and he, he fought with everything he had for five hours. So he's he's right there. His confidence had to increase exponentially in the last three sets, and I think it showed. And I think it just and he keeps a good sense of humor. So he would be yeah. one team team can steal a French Open if Rafa has to bail out of the draw. He definitely is the second best clay court player right now. So he, I don't think he will consistently be be a Grand Slam threat, but I think he will be a consistent French Open threat. Berrettini to me is the Italian Songa, uh, similar build, similar style. Uh, he may tighten up at some of the wrong times, like Songa does, but at least he'll put himself in that situation. Rublev and Kachanov. Kachanov just had a bad tournament because he's played a lot of matches this year. And then Felix and Felix will have to wait a couple of years out, as well as compatriot. And then I just I put Zverev. He just he's plateaued already. I almost I almost wonder if he's hit a career peak, unless he can find a way to add another dimension to his game. I think he's just he won't make it past number five. Yeah, and how, and how emotional think, a moment was it when they were playing Nadal's like nineteen Grand Slams like review on the uh, on the big screen. Well, the fact that, that Medvedev got inspired by it. I mean, yeah. he was literally watching it. Everybody was watching it. Nadal watched it like a child. Like, have I really accomplished all this? Yeah. I think it shows. It shows. It just to me that 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 whole video was about the big three. He just it just happened to be his montage, but it's about this incredible longevity that they've had. I mean, his fifteen years. Federer almost. Tw- Federer may go. You know, set, Federer will probably get one more. Djokovic has been this decade, but it's about the relentless sort of domination of the sport. Yeah, and it, it was, was awesome. kind of funny. Medvedev's awesome. response to it was, "If I had won, what would they show?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was thinking, it's like, yeah, what would they show? <laughs> but anyway, uh, so I think we've uh, we've reached the point where we're talking about the most. Uh, the biggest uh, conversation topic to come out of the Nadal victory. It is number 19. And Peter, you know what what I, you... if you don't mind, before yeah. we get to that topic, I want to hear where you guys rank that in terms of his fi- Grand Slam finals victories. Is that in the top five because of 
how the match played out. I almost had it at number three after Wimbledon and the Australian Open where he beat Verdasco and Fed. I would maybe almost put it at three. So I'm curious, before we talk about the, you know, the GOAT question, I'm curious where you guys as, as Rab and Nadal fans put that. Peter, do you have uh, do you have responses? Three is in play. Um, I'm trying to think. There was the 2013 uh, U.S. Open final where he beat Djokovic, and it was in sort of the heart of Djokovic's dominance. Um, and that was really uh, satisfying. Um, I think that the problem, not the problem, but one of the issues with this tournament relative to others is that he didn't really have that strong a competitor until the final. Um, but it, if it's not three, it's probably top five. Yeah, I, I can say with certainty what number 19 of the most satisfying is. And that was the <laughs> one where he beat Kevin Anderson two years ago. Like, that is his asterisk Grand Slam, because he literally played nobody ranked within the top 20 at that time um, throughout the entire tournament. Um, I think, yeah, so the Wimbledon that you mentioned... Beating, and then beating Ferrer. Oh, no, did he, beat, did he beat Novak? When he beat Ferrer in the finals, did he play Novak in the semis of the French? Or that was a different year? I have... I, so he's won so many French Opens that they all blur together. <laughs> So that actually is another thing making this topic really difficult. But I think when he won his first grant in 2017, when he, he won his first French after not having won it for three years, that was a big grant. That was a big moment for him. He's like, okay, I'm back. I'm winning grand slams again. Um, and the other one was when in the 2008 French, when he lost four games to Federer. Yeah. Uh, that was like the other end of the spectrum of, it was just a total beat down the entire time. Same with 2017 when he lost to 935 games. Yeah, yeah. So I think this one, um, the final was a great match, but the, yeah, as Peter said, the tournament leading up to it wasn't particularly like uh, memorable for him. Um, but the match itself, the final match itself, yeah, it's probably top five. Um, yeah, I'm only, I'm only looking at finals matches there, you know, regardless. Yeah. Because whether or not you play against Humpty Dumpty, if you get a good opponent in the finals, you still got to win that match, you know, and it's all for naught, you know, if you don't, so. Yeah. Probably yeah. three. Yeah. Five at, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, Peter, um... What do you think 19 means for Rafa? What 19 means for Rafa is that he's still in the game for maybe winning more majors than the other two. Because, um, I mean, Djokovic is still the one who's got uh, more, I wouldn't call it youth, but he's more youthful than Federer and Nadal are. So he's probably going to be the one who, who goes the longest. And can get some majors when the other two are are, are done um, at the tail end. And uh, but but Nadal now has a three a cushion of three over Djokovic, and he's still the guy to beat at the French until it's proven that he's not. And so you can be somewhat 
confident that Nadal will win at least one more French, maybe two more Frenches. Um, and he's proven that he can, like, he made the semis of, of Wimbledon and the finals of Australia, too. Like, he's, he's still in the hunt at all the tournaments and the favorite at, at, uh, at the French. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's just sort of when he was at 18 and Djokovic was at 16 and Federer was at 20, you just sort of thought that, all right, Nadal maybe has one or two Frenchies left, and then it'll be um, Federer and Djokovic vying for the, the top uh, number. And I guess what this sort of uh, solidifies is that Nadal is is in that is is still solidly in the yeah, um, yeah. I think it actually. I think he sort of stole this um, event. I mean, I called him out, but not everyone has the foresight that I do, um, and so most people uh, really just assumed that his remaining Grand Slam titles would be French Opens, um, and I still think he has a few more French Opens in him. But uh, yeah, every every non-French Open Grand Slam now is bonus, and so another. Um, Another aspect of this is he now has seven um, hard and grass Grand Slams, uh, which is the same number as McEnroe, uh, which means that like anyone who calls him a clay court specialist is uh, is just patently wrong. Like this guy uh, would still be one of the greatest of all time if the clay court surface, if all of those tournaments were erased, you know. But how did, what's the term then that you use to? You know, best highlight is clay court greatness. Do we then just say he's a clay court king? I mean, because he owns... In other words, I think part of that's meant to be a compliment and not necessarily a... Uh, a, a I mean, from my perspective, if I say, you know, Rafa is a clay court guru or specialist or, or whatever, virtuoso, it's just saying, like, he owns that surface. He's mastered it. You know, who's to say that he's, you know... Yeah, I don't. I don't expect that form is taken. You know, you know what I'm saying. Like, I don't know if it's meant to disparage his non-clay court play, but it just so happens that he he was smart to master that surface first, and I think he built his confidence by virtue of doing so well in the clay first. Yeah, um, I don't actually know the like term that uh, uh, correctly. Um, highlights his clay court greatness while not belittling his game on other surfaces. I think it's just like he's an exceptional tennis player who has dominated on clay. Yeah. It's I mean, a, it, there's not one one neat phrasing. It like requires a sentence. Being at the match, to me, highlighted... Like, I think Nadal... The way that Nadal played on hard courts... With the exception of that 2013 Djokovic match, if he played on hard courts the way that even he played on hard courts last year, perhaps even the year before when he won it, I don't think he wins that match. I think he played, his hard court play is better than it used to be. He's hitting his backhand flatter. He loops it when he has to. He got to net with a high percentage. Should have got to net more. Can get to net more. I mean, ironically, there's actually room for improvement on hard courts. He didn't serve particularly well yesterday, 
which is what allowed Medvedev to even stay in the match. But he's a much one shot that I sort of noticed of his for the first time, even though he's probably been doing it forever. He does like a a, a wide angled slice from his backhand when he's like in trouble, that it like bounces like right below the net, um, and so it like creates an intense angle. And it stays low so that uh, the opponent will never be hitting their the next ball when it's above the net, and so it like just creates an awkward moment where where the opponent has to lift the shot, and like it basically turns defense into offense really, really um, smoothly. But yeah, he is just like there is just like nuance like that that makes his hardcourt game really hard to play like for example another thing that we noticed was he was serving and volleying a lot um and he he won 78 percent of his net points like in the fifth when it was tight uh mark and i both we were just like he should serve and volley every point peter are you still here yeah still here uh, got your observation as well that there's actually, it's not so much that he's, he can improve his shot making on hard courts, but I think he can deploy some of his hard court strengths even more going forward. And he may have to, you know, I don't think he, I I think last year's U.S. Open took a lot out of him physically, like took several months out of him. This one will not, but with his health, you just never know. I mean, he's, he's usually a wild card with health, so. You know, going forward, he'll have to pace himself like he did this year. It's also you know, maybe take one tournament that he feels like, okay, I'm just going to try to mail it in. If I can steal a victory, I'll steal it. But I got to really, you know, keep my strength for the clay. Yeah, his his upcoming schedule is actually like I'm sort of curious about it because it'll sort of portend how hard he's um, he wants this number one at the end of the year ranking. Because he literally has zero points to defend the rest of the season just because he got that knee injury at the U.S. Open last year and then shut it down. Um, and so, yeah, that, that'll be interesting. Like, I think he just sees the rest of the season as, like, bonus. I sort of see him playing one of the two remaining Masters 1000 events and the year-end just to see if he can get um, the year-end title. Uh, what about you? What do you think, Peter? Yeah, I, I hope he doesn't play as much as he could play. Um, of what Mark said, he has such injury risk. And um, right now, it's like, I think that one of the things that might dictate the golf schedule is uh, how injured Djokovic is. Because I think if Djokovic is playing a lot, uh, I mean, Nadal is 2,000 points ahead of Djokovic in the race, and Djokovic could get those 2,000 points um, if it's, like, only him and nobody else, or, and neither of the other big three who's playing the end of the season. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I hope, I hope Nadal uh, really takes it easy. Yeah. And I guess one more thing about the later season... I guess the Paris uh, Masters 1000 event has proven to be a curse. Um, so the winners in the last two years, Jack Sock, he won it, and then he just <laughs> fell off a cliff. And then Kachanov, he won it, and he's not even top 15 in the race right now. Um, 
And so who's going to win that event and then be cursed for the entire next season? Yeah, uh, we'd have to see who won it the year before. Uh, maybe Shapovalov, because Shapovalov has never won a tournament, um, not even a 250. So he seems like a prime candidate. He like fits the <laughs> sock like Kashinov mold. Yeah, maybe him. Uh, maybe... Uh, Chorich? Hmm. Yeah, maybe Chorich. Uh, maybe somebody like Kyle Edmund or something. <laughs> cool. Anyway... Uh, Somebody, it, it would be random. It would have to be random. I think we'll be discussing this in the next podcast because, uh, uh, yeah, it's sort of uh, we'll we'll probably have another one before the Paris Masters event. So, uh, yeah, to our anyway, listeners, the big event, the big event of the fall is Rafa's wedding. So maybe we'll we'll have one right before then, and we can. Oh yeah, stock and stuff. Right? Did you see his uh, fiance Shiska? She was like going crazy, and she's usually so poised, but she was cheering like crazy. Like, give her a ring, and she behaves like Mirka. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, on that note, um, I'm gonna try and before the next call, I'm gonna try and find my own Shiska uh, to cheer me on in my everyday routine of. Uh, taking a shower and going to the grocery store. Um, and yeah, to our listeners, thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter at doubles alley pod, uh, on iTunes, uh, search the doubles alley. And, uh, if you like what you're hearing, um, tell your friends and give us a five star review. Um, till next time, uh, have a good one.